0: Well, start with me to Romans chapter nine. Romans chapter nine, and we've been looking at uh, uh, Paul's concern, uh, trying to get at the question of why his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, uh, don't turn to God just yet, and has God's purpose failed? And last week we looked at um, how it hasn't. God's purpose hasn't failed. Um, And uh, and we began to speak about uh, God's sovereign election, Um, his election of the people of the promise. And um, we're going to continue Paul's thought process here as we come to verse 14. But before we do that, again, let's bow our heads in prayer. Let's pray. Lord our God, uh, again, we thank you for the word. And we pray that uh, by your spirit you would come and make it live to us. Uh, make the book live, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in uh, chapter 9, and um, I think we're in the middle of what, what can be called some difficult teaching, and uh, some of us are trying to marry what we said this morning with what we're going to say this evening. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, I um, hope I can help you with that, but uh, maybe not. And you want, may want to have a conversation with me afterwards. Because um, I was fairly, I was kind of coming down fairly hard on five-point Calvinists. Not that I disagree with five points of Calvinism, but the way that people handle it is, can be quite, uh, quite off-putting. Um, but, so nothing that I've said this morning undermines the, the sovereignty of God in election. It's just about how God actually comes to us when we talk about covenant uh, and so on. Uh, and we need to understand that God is sovereign in uh, salvation, that he does uh, have purposes, and he is working them out with unerring skill and perfection. And it is a wrestle, and it's, it's difficult. I, d- I don't think actually what Paul says here um, is unclear. I, uh, actually, I think he's, he's quite clear. It's just uncomfortable for us, I think, uh, and it can, it can be quite emotionally um, uh, upsetting, I think, for some folks. Um, and to, to illustrate the emotional reaction to it, um, I was I was meeting with some other pastors this week, and uh, a, a meeting where we we talk about our sermons and what we're going to preach on. And uh, uh, I was talking about this passage this week, and uh, one of the pastors there uh, from us church in Birmingham said, oh yes, I, I preached on the doctrine of election from the Gospel of John. Not, not this passage, but from the Gospel of John. And uh, he, to- he proceeded to tell me uh, a story of um, how, as he was preaching, and it's a fairly large church, a couple of hundred, most, a lot of students that go to that church. And at um, uh, the point, critical point in the sermon, as he was speaking about God's sovereign election and salvation, one of the students stood up and took his church Bible and threw it at him <laughs> in the church service. And uh, my friend, who at the time—this was a few years ago—at the time was was actually a boxer as a <laughs> as one of his hobbies. You know, he was um, he did all the training and stuff. And I think he did one fight. He's about the same age as me, so he's bit of a crazy guy, Um, former surgeon and now um, pastor and boxer, (laughs) but uh, because he's a boxer he knew how to duck and dive, and uh, the guy's aim was quite good, and he just missed his head with the Bible, and if you imagine where they meet uh, in the Octagon in Birmingham, the city church in Birmingham, um, it's a fairly elevated uh, kind of bank of people, and it's the Bible was coming down at him uh, uh, with great velocity so <laughs> and momentum. And he managed to avoid it. Uh, I don't know what state the Bible was in afterwards, but the man then just left. Because he was emotionally driven by the uncomfortableness of what, God, uh, what Paul is saying here and what God is saying here about himself. Um, now hopefully nobody here is going to throw anything at me. You may want to throw something at me for that and other reasons, but hopefully you can restrain yourselves enough to bear with me uh, as we look at this question. Um, and I think uh, you know, one of the things that with God's election that we have to wrestle with is it does take time for it to kind of bed down in our minds and our thinking um, and to get comfortable with it. I understand that. Um, and, and so stick with it. Um, And seek to try and fit it together with all the other doctrines that we we will look at at as we touch on various passages of Scripture. Um, Because it will come. It will make sense in the fullness of time. Um, I think when we come to a passage like this, uh, sometimes it it feels like you're going on a journey and you think you know where you're going. But then suddenly you find yourself in uh, in places you didn't expect to be. And I think there's a bit of this in... Uh, Paul's dealing with Romans um, uh, the journey that we followed so far uh, has been uh, his line of argument has been founded upon this idea that God is righteous and we are not um, um, have we not read the passage right thank you (laughs) so uh, let me just read the passage and then we'll get on to it so verse 14 That's the trouble with preambles, as you forget you haven't done things. Uh, Paul says in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For well, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he, ha- who, whom, whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So the journey that we've been on so far is that we have... Um, Shown that seen that God is righteous and we are not. And, uh, and left, so left to ourselves, we are by nature, uh, but in our sinful nature, unrighteous. We lack righteousness. And how can the righteous God deal with unrighteous people? So in order to be saved from the consequences of our unrighteousness... Um, We have to believe what God says about himself, first of all, that he's holy, and to recognize with whom we are dealing, and then we have to believe what God says about us, that we're completely unable to save ourselves, but also, and crucially, that there is a righteousness to be had from God. So it's not our righteousness, it's a righteousness from God. That uh, God displays his righteousness in saving grace, in sending his son as a propitiatory sacrifice um, into the world. And uh, that's, of course, Jesus Christ, uh, uh, who in one act of self-sacrifice has opened the way to salvation and life for all who have faith in him. Um, Now, this all makes wonderful sense. Until we ask the question, why is it that some people believe and some people don't? And then we begin to get into the difficult questions. And actually, this is the question that Paul is anticipating here in, verse, in chapter 9. As he thinks about his Jewish friends and family who have rejected Christ. And our natural reaction, perhaps, is uh, in, our, in our sin and misunderstanding, is to think something like this. that they, Maybe they're just much more sinful than anyone else. All those people that reject God and reject the gospel, maybe they're just much more sinful than anyone else. Somehow they deserve to miss out on salvation. And the flip side of that is that we somehow do deserve it, that we deserve God's grace. We deserve God's goodness. There's something about us that makes us worthy. Uh, and we may even be tempted to say that I'm worthy because I exercise faith in God. So that faith becomes, a, in our minds at least, becomes a kind of work that merits for us God's saving grace uh, to us. And of course all of that's false. All of that's false. Uh, you see, that kind of thought, so that kind of thinking, uh, is uh, there's a little bit of the Pharisee in it. You know the Pharisee in Luke chapter 18 uh, and the tax collector, they come into the temple, and the Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not like this man. <laughs> I'm just a little bit better than him, and he deserves what he gets, and I don't. You, you get the story. Um, well, we saw last week that um, the reason that you or I obtain salvation is not because of anything in me at all, not a single thing that commends us to God. And actually, the reason for my salvation uh, comes from within God himself. Uh, and Paul speaks about God's purposes in salvation, his promise, which results in his election and choosing some for salvation. And it's, and it's at this point that some of us might think, hang on, I've, I've kind of enjoyed the, ju- the journey so far up to chapter 8, but how do we get here in chapter 9? Um, so that brings us to the first First point this evening. Uh, the question, is God unjust? Is God unjust in acting this way? Um, see, that's a question that could dawn upon us. Is How is it fair or even just that God would choose only some people? And perhaps worse, how is it fair or just that some people are not chosen? Um, and what and, and what therefore is their is their fate, um, especially, you know, if like the Jews there are people who have had so many privileges in their personal history. Uh, you know, pr- the Jews had um, all the, the covenants and the promises, the worship and uh, the law and so on, and the patriarchs. Um, there are many people today who have many privileges and yet don't seem to come to to faith in Christ and don't seem to be saved. And Paul, I think, having a a pastor's heart um, uh, anticipates that question in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Maybe some of us have got that kind of lingering question in our minds, too. Um, when I first came across this kind of teaching as a young Christian, it was disturbing. Um, how could God choose some and, and choose, not choose others? Um, so we need to think about this carefully. Uh, the foundation to Paul's argument through this letter is his concept, of course, of righteousness or justice. Uh, the two words are interchangeable, righteousness, justice, dikai, uh, sine, uh, it's the same word. And, uh, and there, we have to get right our thinking about it, uh, especially when we're thinking about God. It's, you see, it's God's justice that creates a dilemma for us um, because we're sinful human beings yet it 's also part of his justice and righteousness that he provides uh, the Son uh, to bear our sins in his place and we 've seen that back in, in, in chapter 20, 23. Um, sorry chapter three verse twenty six <laughs> um, it was to show his righteousness in the present time so that he might become just uh, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in jesus christ so he 's both just and the justifier through Jesus. Um, and so, and we'll get into that in a moment. But, uh, but notice that Paul's immediate response to that question, "Is God unjust?" His answer is by no means. Uh, or, as the King James puts it, "God forbids that He should be unjust." Um, and the fact that his response is instantaneous, it may take us by surprise, uh, but we are left in no doubt that. That if, if we thought this, then we have come to the wrong conclusion. If we thought that God is unjust, then we've come to the wrong conclusion. Because, of course, if God is unjust and therefore arbitrary, uh, then everything he has said about the gospel and the way of salvation is salvation and rubbish. Because he's arbitrary. Why does it matter that Jesus comes? So Paul has to show us that God... Is just in choosing some and not others, uh, which brings us to the second point. So, God is God unjust? No, He's not. But secondly, salvation is of God's mercy. Verses, and we're looking at verses fifteen and sixteen, particularly. And this is how Paul answers the justice question. He turns to the mercy of God, and as, as he often does, he he turns to Scripture. Uh, and which for, for Paul is the Old Testament, And so he turns to the Old Testament, and he quotes from a statement from Exodus uh, 33 uh, verse 18. I think I'm it down. I'll find it in a second. Uh, but Paul says, "He says to Moses, "I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and will have compassion on whom I will have compassion." Now the background to the story in Exodus 33 is that Moses has led the people of Israel out of Egypt and they've come to Mount Sinai so Moses has now gone up to the top of the mountain and is receiving the Ten Commandments meanwhile down at the bottom of the mountain Aaron Moses' brother and many other people decide that they're going to create an idol and they're going to dance around it and they're going to s- describe it as well we're worshipping the Lord and so they go about this and it's, it's, it comes from their time in, Israel, in, in Egypt all the pagan nonsense that they were surrounded by they think this is how you deal with God this is how you, you worship God this is, and it's fun as well uh, let's dance around an idol let's uh, have a great party And we'll say we're worshipping God. And of course, God's anger burns against the people. Uh, It's a great sin. In fact, the second commandment. Not to make any graven images against the Lord. And so, in a a sense, they deserve the full weight of God's anger for their foolish sin. Now what happens then is, is that Moses intercedes... He pleads with God on behalf of these sinful people. And God relents from disaster. But then he says that the people will go up to the promised land as promised, but without the presence of God. And this is too much for Moses. Because he he, he draws the logical conclusion. What's the point of going up to the promised land if we don't have... The presence of God amongst us. You must go with us. Um, there's no point. There really isn't. And so he intercedes some more with God in Exodus 33. And in the end, God relents, saying that his presence will go with them. But as the Lord makes clear, not for any other reason than that God has sovereignly decided that he's going to be merciful. And that he's chosen to do so. And so Paul quotes from Exodus 33. Now let me just read a, a, a bit more of that section. And uh, uh, verse 18, Exodus thirty-three eighteen, Moses said to God, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And will proclaim before you my name. The Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But He said, "You cannot see My face, for man shall not see Me and live." And the Lord said, "Behold, there is a place by Me where you shall go, uh, where you shall stand on the rock, and while My glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock." And I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand, away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. What a marvelous picture of God graciously coming to Moses and uh, revealing himself, but limiting his revelation because Moses can't bear it, wouldn't be able to bear it. And God chooses to spare Israel. Uh, because of His mercy, when they deserve to be annihilated and destroyed um, for their sin, now this is true also today. When someone is called and chosen to salvation it 's not a question of whether it 's just or unjust for God to do that, make that choice. It is a sheer act of divine mercy and compassion on those who are completely lost and who deserve God's judgment. Now, just in case we are concerned that, that, God, uh, that God be just, we, we need to understand God's justice properly, don't we? That for God... Uh, What does that justice entail? Well, the strict justice requires that everyone who breaks God's law must face justice. And that means everyone. Every single human being. So do you or I want that strict justice to come? Not a single one of us. Not a single one of us would come out unscathed. We would face that judgment and death and the punishments of hell. But as an act of mercy... On the part of God, he is providing a way that some people can avoid this justice. Not arbitrarily letting some people off with punishment for their sin, with, uh, without punishment for their sin, but rather through him, through Christ, providing a substitute in our place. The Son of God who willingly took on human nature and became an atoning sacrifice for sins. That's why, as I mentioned earlier, Paul says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So it truly is a sovereign act of mercy on God's part to choose some for salvation. And this justice is preserved through the substitutionary work. Of Jesus Christ. And friends. I just wonder. If we've all considered. Here this evening. Yeah, young people and old people. Have we all considered. How much. You need. God. To be merciful to you. Because you're a sinner. And I mean. Utterly. Merciful. God is not impressed. Impressed in any way at all, with your qualifications? And all that needs to happen here is he makes up the difference. You know, I, I'll provide all this and all my goodness. And God will provide mercy to cover the gap. Do you believe that your salvation is all of God's mercy because you have nothing to contribute at all to it? You are completely helpless, so am I. And that God has to give us everything that we don't deserve. And that because he has been utterly merciful, you and I, we have, uh, we have that complete need of Jesus Christ as our substitute. And it's through him that we discover we are the children of promise when we come to him. So, God's justice and uh, saving mercy. But let's finally. Uh, here's the final point. We need to trust God for the bigger story. Uh, as we think about these questions of God's justice and his saving mercy, trust God for the bigger story. Um, Paul's teaching of God, uh, of God electing some to salvation does leave us with the question of those who are passed by. Um, And Paul does look at this briefly in verse 17, uh, where he speaks of Pharaoh um, and uh, those early chapters of Exodus. And you may may remember that story. Uh, Moses uh, is instructed by God to go to Pharaoh to ask him to release the Israelites, such that they may go to Sinai to worship God. And as you might expect, uh, Pharaoh refuses. I mean, it's a big deal. Uh, because there's 600,000 men and all their families, and they're all slaves. You see, they're all contributing to the economy. I mean, they're all doing work <laughs> that nobody else is doing. And suddenly you lift them out. So you remember, populations were much smaller then than they are now. There's about over 100 million people live in Egypt today. Uh, but the populations were much smaller then. And uh, you know, to so take 600,000 people out of the economy, and suddenly it's a disaster economically. Uh, you can see why he he, he would resist. Uh, apart from the pride aspect of it, economically it's a disaster. But the so the Lord brings these ten plagues, and the first nine of these plagues, Pharaoh refuses. And each time it is noted that Pharaoh's heart uh, became hard. In other words, each time there seems to be less and less sympathy for Moses and his request. Uh, and his request and, and, and sympathy for the Lord himself. And what's interesting in that story is, is that the hardening of Pharaoh's heart is described in a number of different ways. Uh, so for sometimes, for example, Pharaoh is described as he hardened his heart. So it's an act of his hardening. He does it himself to himself. And we can do that, can't we? We can harden our hearts against people and against good things. Sometimes it's expressed passively. His heart was hardened. As though it's not clear who's, who's doing the hardening here. And then sometimes there are places where the Lord is the one who's doing the hardening. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, it says. So all three are, are, are acting at the same time. The Pharaoh himself. Passively, somebody's doing it somewhere, and the Lord is doing it. The hardening of the heart. And actually, before the plagues, uh, the Lord says that He will harden Pharaoh's heart. If you look back to Exodus chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. God says I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt Pharaoh will not listen to you then I will lay my hand in Egypt and bring my hosts, the people of uh, uh, the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment um, and this is the story that Paul now refers to in Romans 9:17. Uh, so what are we to make of this action of God hardening people's hearts it sounds bad doesn't it um, Well, before we think about Paul's answer here, let me just mention one thing we've already seen in Romans. Uh, In chapter 1, when Paul is surveying the state of unrighteousness in the world uh, and all its godlessness and so on. and And do you remember how he said that because of all the godlessness and all the unrighteousness of man, that he would give them over to their sin? Remember he said that? Several times, he says, God gave them over to those sins and passions of the heart. And didn't he say that that in itself, that act of giving people over to their sin, was an, uh, an act of the revelation of the wrath of God. That actually as people go off and do their own thing, as they are given over to their sin, it's actually a sign of the wrath of God to come. And it's interesting because the wrath of God is, uh, first of all, it seems to be giving people what they want. And what we noted then about the uh, 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 about that in the economy of God is that every single person who loves sin and rejects God uh, and rejects God, and and they are permitted for a time to indulge themselves uh, because God gives them what they want. And actually, I think that takes us by surprise because we recognize that God is right to hold them to account. So, why would God do that? Well, what we see in chapter one, therefore, is the progressive hardening of people's hearts against God as they indulge themselves in their sins. So, God is hardening hearts as he gives them over to sin. And yet, at the same time, what are people doing? They're wanting to sin. They're, they're not doing anything they don't want to do. And so they're hardening their own hearts. And seen in this light, it's no surprise then that Paul, by chapter 9, is up front about the agency of God in this. He hardens hearts. He hardens all hearts. And it's part of the prelude to judgment for sin. However, Paul is actually doing something interesting here. He, he lifts our eyes to the bigger picture that is much more important than all of that. Because the key thing about Pharaoh being raised up in this way is what he says in verse 17, the second half of verse 17. For this, for Scripture says to Pharaoh, "For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed." In all the earth. Now, how is that the case? Because in the midst of the resistance of a powerful, godlike man, the Lord saved a people from slavery into freedom. As that heart was hardened, it demonstrated the glory of God in salvation with Israel. But that was just a picture. The Old Testament was. Is a picture of something greater that's going to come, because there is a greater exodus. That's what Jesus says in Luke's Gospel in the, the Mount of Transfiguration. I, um, there is a departure. I will depart. I will exodus with my, and He will do that with His people, as He sp- speaks in His Transfiguration. And Jesus Christ leads people who are chosen of God out of slavery and and the darkness of the power of sin and Satan into the light of the freedom of his kingdom. And the glory of salvation comes to men and women. And so the resistance that people are, are, you, that you see all around us as people indulge themselves in their sins, as they're given over to their sins, God, in the middle of all of that, is saving people out of darkness into light so that his glory is shown in the church of Jesus Christ as people are saved. You see, it's in the midst of the the messy melee of this world that God is in the business of saving people and displaying his power to the world. Not a power that's political or financial, but the kind of power that makes and sustains people who have as the burden of their hearts the worship and the glory of God. And he does all that in the midst of a world that makes it hard and difficult for them. Friends, we're called here to keep our eyes on this great picture of God's saving purposes. This God who is in the business of saving people out of a messy world. God is hardening the hearts of people, ready for the judgment that they deserve. Yet in his power through Christ, he is able to save some, even many, for his name's sake. Have we been saved today? Have you been saved? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you been rescued by the wonderful gospel of Christ? Have you received the Jesus Christ that is presented to you in these pages by faith alone? Have you received him? And rested on him. That was the message that Paul preached. For all the discussions about the sovereign election of God. He still went into the world and preached that gospel. Come to Jesus and be saved. He went to all the people that he could. He preached to all that he could. He invited them to believe and trust in the Lord Jesus and be saved. It was, one, it was and is God's method of bringing about the salvation of his chosen ones. In the midst of all the hardening going on around us. And here's one final point. How do you know that you are chosen? That's a question. I have people who, who are believers, but they come to me and say, how do I know that I'm, I'm actually chosen of God? Well, this, the answer is a very simple one. You know you're chosen of God when you hunger and thirst after Jesus Christ and you go to him and you find him and he never turns you away. That's how you know you're chosen. Not because of some abstract idea that God's got a book in heaven. He, he does, but, you know, we don't worry about that. We say to people, come. Come to Jesus. And when they come, we say, you're chosen of God. What a blessed thing. The saving work of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your wonderful gospel. And there are many hard questions that uh, linger in our minds, and maybe we haven't answered all of them today. But, Father, we thank you that we can trust you in the midst of all, all of our uncertainty, that there are some things that are absolutely certain that we can rest on. Jesus Christ came for sinners, and we rest on him. And we pray you grant to us that assurance that we have indeed been saved, we are indeed chosen, that we are the objects of your love and mercy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.